Welcome to the Idea Pod, a podcast dedicated to exploring and interrogating professional biomedical and applied ethics here at the University of Leeds. So, hi everyone, I'm Dr. Josh Hobbs, a lecturer here at the Idea Centre, and I have one of my former dissertation students here with me today, and we're just going to talk a little bit about the broad topic of Thomas's dissertation on uh, police ethics and any kind of interesting things that kind of come up along that topic. So, uh, well, I'll let uh, Thomas introduce himself. So over to you, Thomas. Yeah, thanks, Josh. My name is Thomas O'Connor. Um, I'm with Josh virtually from Dublin. Um, my own background, I did an undergraduate degree in the University of Limerick in Ireland and studied public administration, did a lot of politics, economics, sociology, statistics, that type of thing. Um, I then did a master's in criminal justice, which is awarded by University College Dublin, or UCD. And I'm a police officer, so I'm quite interested in justice and policing and how to do it better. Um, so I decided ethics was something I wanted to look at. It was something very topical. Um, a lot of failings that we have, you know, seem to be attributed to ethical failings. And I guess I wanted to understand you know, what people meant by ethical failings and maybe see how we can improve our policing and particularly my own policing. I want to be as good a policeman as I can be and I want to help others to be as good policemen as they can and women as they can be. Um, so I did a master's in applied and professional ethics. It was available by distance learning with the University of Leeds um, and loved, absolutely loved the course. And as I said, I went on through my dissertation on the applied ethics of policing. So obviously it's concerned with the application in the real world of what ethical knowledge I could glean from the course. So I, I suppose my initial question here would just be like, what what got you interested in the subject? Like, why do you think police ethics matters? Like, is there... Is there something that sort of brought you to reflecting about this, perhaps like in your in your own life or something you've come across in a film or anything like that? Yeah, um, I suppose it, as you go on and think about ethics, it, it struck me. Um, one of my favourite films is Dirty Harry and Harry Callahan, clearly the hero, clearly the good guy. Um is chasing down a bad guy who has imprisoned a girl and she's going to suffocate. So the police need to get her. So Harry Callahan is our hero and he goes after the bad guy, Scorpio. And when I was watching it, it nothing ever struck me as kind of controversial or particularly interesting from an ethical point of view. But as I became a police officer, I look back on it and I see Harry Callahan breaking and entering into an apartment I see him shooting a person who's trying to get away and no danger to him. I see him going to the person, torturing him by applying force to his knee with his foot. I see him failing to summon help. And it kind of starts me thinking of how can someone do the, all these things 
with absolutely without question as to who's the good guy and it seems to be absolutely accepted oh yeah that seems fine and so that's what kind of got me thinking about it um this notion of a kind of a double standard maybe or uh i suppose how a moral class of wrong how we end up with two moral classes of wrong and what about you know was there something about police culture or policing that leads us to that conclusion so yeah, I mean, that, that definitely makes sense to me. And it is kind of a a curious thing that we look at these sort of uh, these sort of uh, film uh, police officers as good guys when they're kind of engaged in so many things that seem like, at least on the face of it, deeply unethical. I mean, so I guess my my thought here would just be like, well, why not just apply standard ethical thought to the police? Why not just say that? There's nothing distinct or special about police ethics. We just do some ethics and apply that to whatever kind of profession we happen to be thinking about. I mean, is there something that makes the police different? Yeah, I suppose I started off, Josh, looking at, you know, what makes us unique in the police? Um, I suppose there are a couple of things that I would say make the police unique when, you know, examining ethical behaviour or ethics or even examining just police and society, you have a couple of natural uh, barriers to them integrating into society. So you have, first of all, you have a regular shift pattern. So society is generally set up with people working nine to five. Um, you may have sports training in an evening, you go to gym, you do whatever you do. And most of your friends will probably work nine to five or some variant of that. But the police, they're working nights, they're working weekends, which makes it difficult for them, I suppose, to form bonds outside of the police. That's why you tend to have a lot of police, you know, socialise together, play sports together and friends with each other. You have a natural bonding process from facing danger, um, much like a soldier might recant their stories of war. You know, you, you deal with issues that a normal person in society just can't understand, like facing someone with a gun who's looking to shoot you or someone attacking you with a knife. Um, you know, one of my own experiences, I came across someone whose throat had been slit and I was trying to hold, a, basically a makeshift bandage up against a throat to, so he wouldn't effectively bleed to death. You had two other drunk people on the scene shouting who wanted to fight you. These are issues that most people can't relate to. So you, you have a natural bonding with people who have a shared experience. Um, and I suppose to exasperate that, a, a police officer, it's much like a, a doctor or a lawyer, solicitor, barrister, anything like that. The, when your profession becomes known, it often results in the social interaction turning into some sort of consultation or com complaint about something which you, you may know nothing about. Somebody might have a gripe about getting a speeding ticket or the police arrested their nephew's girlfriend's brother because he was doing nothing on the street um, you, you know you, it, it, the social situation they turn to turn into these type of consultations or complaints so you tend to drift away from it and seek refuge perhaps in in situations with other police officers and their families where you're not going to experience that and I think I, that um, that gets combined then with the what I was talking about earlier, so the the police, you know, 
becoming the good guys. Um, if you're becoming the good guy, you're generally going to be set up taking action against somebody else. And clearly that somebody else is going to become the bad guy. So the bad guy naturally becomes the people that the police target. Now, you've all sorts of issues with coming to the fore at the moment where certain ethnic groups have believed that police are disproportionately targeting them. If the, you know, and if we come to see a certain type of person as the wrongdoer, we're going to take action um, against those people. They have to become the bad guy. And there's a danger that the police will see a particular type of person as a bad guy. And obviously because we're the good guys, our sort the logic goes. So that, so I mean, so I, I personally, I come, I had a, a military upbringing. I come from a family with a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of soldiers, people in the air force and the like. And I suppose, yeah, this, this sounds a lot to me like the kind of some of the challenges raised by military ethics. So we had a, uh, a, um, somebody who did their PhD here at the Idea Center in kind of the idea of soldierly virtue and whether there was kind of a distinct sort of set of virtues or a distinct way of acting ethically that applied to soldiers that was somehow different to kind of civilians and to regular people. Because, I mean, on the face of it, it seems we'd say killing people looks like it's morally wrong, yet there's something that soldiers do all the time. There must be something that sort of changes this and allows it to be okay in those circumstances and if so the whole ethical situation looks different i mean so do you think that the the military analogy is a good analogy here to police ethics i think i'd view it josh as like a spectrum um so certainly a lot of what the police experience <clears throat> is moving towards what a soldier might experience. So you might have a police marksman. You have armed police officers. I mean, in the UK has thousands of police. I think it's about four and a half thousand. In Ireland, we have about four and a half thousand police officers, I think, armed. Um, but are firearms available to them? So a lot of people in the police, will go to work with a firearm. And they go to work with a firearm because what they're likely to face is extremely dangerous. You have uniformed officers out on the street who will face every single day, every single night, um, people threatening them, people ramming them in cars, people looking to stab them, people on drugs um, who are not capable of self-control. Um, they have to deal with a lot of mental health issues, which are very difficult and very challenging circumstance for a police officer to deal with because they only deal with it at the crisis point. Um, so a lot of what they experience will move towards what the military experience. But what I see as a key difference, Josh, is that we're not at war. The police are not at war with people. Um, despite what the slogans might say in regards to, you know, like we've a war on terror, we've a war on drugs. There's no war on drugs. It's people get arrested and people get prosecuted. But we're public servants. We're providing a service to the public. We're not at war with an enemy. As a police officer, I don't see an enemy when I walk in the streets. I see people, I come across people who may want to do me harm in that instance. But you're dealing with that person at the absolute lowest moment in their life, in an absolute crisis. That's not an enemy. That's someone I may have to arrest. Um, I may have to use coercive power. And in the worst case scenario, a police officer has to fire his firearm. You know, so, but these are any use of force. Will, 
by me, I would see as absolutely regrettable and something I try to avoid almost at all costs. Um, so I said, I think the key difference is we're not at war. We're providing a public service. So that keeps us away from the harder edge of what the military have to face. Okay, so yeah, so that's that's a very interesting way of putting it. I suppose the police are kind of caught between the sort of the standard ethics we might think of in civilian life at one extreme, and then the the military ethics at the other extreme, kind of with I guess a foot in both camps a little. So I mean, yeah. I, so are there any kind of specific ethical issues that you've thought about? arising from this kind of unique situation that the police are in? Yeah, I suppose an awful lot of what I thought about doing the dissertation and what came to the fore is I think police generally do a very good job. Most people's interaction with the police, I think, is very good. I think they come across police officers who are very professional and doing a great job and absolutely doing their best. But some of the issues that, you know, you might seek to improve I think may have the roots in this notion of a good guy and a bad guy. And I say guy, that's a possibly gender term. I don't mean it that way. Um, it's more a colloquialism. Uh, when we have set up the, you know, this notion of good and evil or the good guys and the bad guys, um, at least I suppose you look at it, I suppose Scott did I dress slightly Skolnick gives us the analogy of a craftsman's bias. And he talks about policemen being, considering themselves crafts, craftsmen and masters of their trade. So as he tells it, police will see themselves as experts in the field of criminal justice. They know the criminals best. They see it on the streets. They know what's happening. And they're best placed maybe to determine guilt or innocence. And indeed, they have a role in doing that by arresting people they have reasonable grounds to suspect have done wrong. But in viewing yourself as the expert at catching good guys or catching bad guys, the bad guys that you see are the ones who have transgressed the criminal law. And that criminal law is designed to you know, best serve society. It has a normative message in that it points to proper behavior. So when you have that normative message with most laws, it's, it's inevitable that policing will be seen as a moralistic as well as legalistic approach. Our endeavor. So you have this idea that police are doing their best to catch the criminals and the criminal law is there to protect society. But you then move into an area of criminal procedure where the police actions are tested and you have the protection of the individuals, you have the rights, you have responsibilities on police officers to act in a certain way and you have a court to oversee it and all vital parts of the criminal justice system. But the temptation is there to view anything that works in the favour of someone who transgresses the criminal law as aiding their behavior and being bad for society and working in favor of the bad guy. So temptation can develop to put the wrongdoing of one class of person into a different moral class as a wrong of a different person. So in here you might be talking something like uh, perjury and it, you know, something you see in the movies a lot. So the policeman might tell a lie in the box and that seems to us okay because it's in furtherance of a good goal, which is getting the bad guy. But when the bad guy does the very same thing and commits perjury in a box, because it's seen in furtherance of a bad goal, it's morally condemned. Um, 
and that was very interesting to me that um, the good guy, bad guy sets up different moral classes of wrongs and allows someone to commit a wrong and see them still maintain a good moral self-image. So I found that particularly interesting. Yes, yeah, so it certainly sounds like there's a temptation both in the popular understanding of the ethics of police and perhaps in some initial thoughts that one might have about police ethics more generally to just go down this kind of utilitarian or consequentialist route, this kind of line of thinking where as long as the policeman gets the baddie, as long as the uh, consequences overall are good, it kind of doesn't matter so much. So I take it that this is something that you want to resist. Yeah, the utilitarian approach is, is very attractive. Um, you know, on the surface, when you look at it, because you want to bring about the greatest good. Um, and that's generally what most people would like to do. But the difficulty arises if you're adopting a utilitarian approach that you end up with some difficult choices and something that is, you know, absolutely intuitively absolutely repugnant for me as a policeman. So I'm thinking of things like dirty, dirty hands choices. So, um, you know, you, you have a choice. A lot of people will come up with an example. There's 100 people on a bus. There's a bomb on the bus. You don't know which one, but you, ha you think you have the person who planted the bomb in custody. So, he, you know, the person won't tell you. So you decide, look, if we torture one person, it's fine because you'll reveal the location of the bomb and we'll save 100 people. And torturing one person you know, it's much less harm than 100 people dying. And, you know, that's intuitively very attractive. But as I said earlier, my concern is with the application of ethical learning. And if you bring that into any real world situation, you have custody. You don't necessarily have a wrongdoer in custody because you don't know. Um, so the first issue is if you allow police to torture suspects, you're inevitably going to torture innocent people because you get it wrong occasionally. Um, and the, the, the thought of a policeman torturing innocent people should be everybody. And it's certainly repugnant to any decent democracy. Um, you know, you, you, you take it a step further and you torture the person and they won't tell you, but you know they have a six-week-old baby. And all of a sudden... You're saying, well, torturing a baby is still probably better, but surely nobody could advocate that a policeman should consider torturing a six-week-old baby and all to get the daddy to talk to save 100 people. Um, and when you consider that it is just a suspect, we can never be sure that we have the right person. I think you get into very difficult areas like that, that people don't want to go down. And, you know, you can reduce the number of 100 to 20 reduce the number of people to, you know, a taxi and it's three people. Are we still happy to torture people? Why not one person? Um, you know, if someone comes into, you deal with victims of absolutely horrific sexual crime in the police and you could get someone to confess and get them off the street. Is torturing that person okay? You, you know, you end up in the real world of trying to decide with victims, are we going to torture someone to assist and which are we not? And I don't think any good can come of going down that road. So, yeah, I mean, I 
I agree. I personally definitely have my doubts about the, the utilitarian way of looking at things, especially in this kind of context. I mean, I guess this kind of leaves me wondering at the end of this project, do you have kind of a, a picture of what the ethical police officer might look like or like what kind of virtues they might have or anything of the sort? I suppose, you know, I looked at, you know, the, an act utilitarian, a rule utilitarian approach. I looked at a deontological approach. Um, I suppose what I find the, the what I would advocate for is the development of an Aristotelian virtue ethic for police. Um, I think we can't rely on codes of ethics to be, you know, so all encompassing that they provide a ready, a ready made answer for every situation a policeman is going to face because it's or woman, it's absolutely impossible. Um, I think much better develop uh, your or for nieces to um, to allow the policeman or woman to make the virtuous choice. You know, in every situation they come across. Now, I say to make in every choice. Of course, being fully virtuous is extremely difficult. Some would say impossible, but that doesn't stop us moving towards making better, better ethical decisions and trying to be more virtuous. Um, you, you know, we look at the, I, I would say the Aristotelian virtues are police virtues. They apply in the same way. So, for example, you know, courageousness, we look at, uh, we obviously want our police officers to be courageous. We want them to face down people who would do us harm. Um, you know, when all everyone else is running away from danger, we want a policeman, a woman to consider standing there and tackling the bad, the bad person or the person committing the crime. Um, but there is, I mean, there's a virtuous, there's a golden mean when it comes to courage. So we want the police officer to face the person down, but we don't want them to, you know, be excessive, to be brash in it. And we don't want them to take unnecessary risks. And we want the police officer to be able to decide where the, golden mean of courage lies um, as with anyone else you know we tell children from the time they're born when they're going to a dentist be brave and of course we're telling the kid be brave we're telling them be virtuous be courageous because it takes some bravery for a child to go in and let the dentist give him a filling but we don't want the child to jump off a house a two-story house and be very brave that transgresses into an excess of brashness um, so you know in a practical sense I, I think about a police officer approaching somebody who may be wielding a knife and they have to decide how they're going to approach it. Now they can approach it. You could say, be courageous and go up and fight the guy. That's one option. It may be the, the virtuous option in the circumstances. You know, you take in the moral stimuli that are in place at that time and place. Um, but it may be that the virtue here that's relevant is patience. And it may be that the virtuous act is to sit and talk with the person and wait and allow him blow off some steam and vent and maybe persuade him through reason and persuasion to put down the knife without the application of force. So I think um, the Aristotelian virtue ethic and recognising the golden mean, um, the development of Phrenesis, I think that's where the key to making ethical decisions is for a police officer. Yeah, so that's... Yeah, that's a very interesting thesis. And this is, of course, something that you explored in quite a lot of detail in your dissertation. I suppose what I'm kind of wondering is you're in a very unique position as somebody who's both 
done quite a lot of studying and done quite a lot of thought about some of the ethical issues here. And also uh, somebody who's actually a very experienced police officer. I mean, I would be interested to know if if reflecting on these issues has kind of informed your your practice in any way or had any kind of, yeah, had any kind of impact on how you do your job or how you think about doing your job? Well, obviously, I think, um, I'd say half jokingly, I, I would like to think I was quite an ethical police officer before I undertook the course of study. Um, but it absolutely has informed my way of thinking and my level of understanding was at play in making any ethical decision. Um, you know, the, 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 the undertaking the course of study and applied in professional ethics, it provides you, you know, there's a very strong academic background, but there's a very strong real world focus in it. So that certainly from my point of view, I've taken an awful lot from it that I can apply to my, you know, to my job and, you know, sometimes you have to make difficult decisions and you, you do things, you do things that are right. And whereas before, you know, you might be in a position where, you know, you have to say, no, I didn't see this or I didn't see that. And, you know, a guy who did something absolutely terrible is going to go free. And, you know, that might rub you up for the wrong way. But now I, see, I think I've come to appreciate the good in the act of that. And it becomes much easier the choice becomes easier, it becomes more natural, and you can see that it is the right choice. And the amount of internal conflict is diminished greatly by having a better understanding of ethical, you know, ethical study. Um, I say it's it's not so much it will change my actions because I would like to think I operate in a fairly ethical way and try to do the right thing at all times. But it certainly reduces the tension and the need to ruminate maybe on decisions that you can see the right more easily. So I think I'm moving towards a more virtuous character, hopefully. So perhaps going closer to developing those Aristotelian virtues there. I hope so, or else it's all been a complete waste of time. <laughs> well, so, uh, yeah, this this has been really interesting, I think, um, yeah, it's it's great to hear from you again, and um, should probably let you get back to the the important work of uh, catching those criminals. So, uh, thank you for taking part in this, Thomas. And um, yeah, it's great to see you. Josh, thanks for having me. The Idea Pod is produced by the Interdisciplinary Ethics Applied Centre at the University of Leeds. Find out more at ahc.leeds.ac.uk slash ethics. Music composed and conducted by Josh Armitage.